Hello, Flora and Funga listeners. This is your host, Caitlin Keen, and welcome to episode 12 of Flora Funga Podcast. Today we have another special guest. We have Judith Felton on, a researcher at the Department of Forest Genetics and Plant Physiology, Umeo Plant Science Center. Her research interests are pertaining to the development of ectomycorrhizal symbiosis. Her research aims on understanding the molecular mechanism required for ectomycorrhizae establishment. She is also a CEO of Flora L Design, where she takes samples of flora, and then she also takes microscope images, which is microscopy, and turns those images of the inside of the plants into a beautiful piece of fabric. The fabric can be made for towels, bags, cups. I think she even has aprons. You have to contact her and look at her website because the stuff that she creates is gorgeous. So we are going to dive right into this and uh, hope you enjoy. Hello, Judith. Welcome to Flora Funga Podcast. I'm super excited to have you on and thank you for reaching back to come on here. Um, uh, Start with a little bit about yourself and kind of like the cool research or uh, whatever you kind of want to share about. Yeah, thank you very much for for inviting me and for having me here. I think that's um, it's exciting to talk to you and to thank be you. guest in a podcast. It's my first time being a guest. Yeah, and you have your own podcast too. So. Yeah, I have my own podcast too. And yeah, uh, what's the name of that? Podcast? It's called Flora Flora and Friends: Your Botanical Cup of Tea. So I launched that in, in February um as uh, a means of reaching out and talking to different people that yes. have something to do with plants that either work with plants or are collecting plants so it's mm-hmm. not necessarily scientists mm-hmm. for me that's more like i i'm i'm a plant biologist myself a molecular biologist and i have been learning a lot about like a very specific area in plant science but I came into that field through uh, the biochemistry mm. okay yep um, and I've I'm very interested in learning more about plants so for me having this podcast is a great way of reaching out to people who work with completely different plants and who maybe work in a very applied way or mm-hmm. Or or they just collect them in their free time. So talking to the people that have built up an expertise on 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 their favorite yeah. plants is very interesting. And I try to make like mini series. Mm-hmm. Now we we have a mini series with several episodes on pelagoniums. Okay. So I get yeah. to talk to people from industry, from people that collect them, from, with botanists from South Africa, with a researcher oh, wow. also from there. And it's interesting to I think to to get a broad perspective mm-hmm. on this kind of one one genus of plants, even historically, why yeah, did they arrive it. to Europe? Why how did they become so popular at all? Yeah. So I've been I've been uh, enjoying digging into those details. Yeah, that's really <laughs> cool. Being diverse with uh, different yeah, plants. So. Yeah. Awesome. But otherwise, I'm uh, a plant biologist. I have my research group at the Swedish University of Agricultural Science, and they are the Umeå Plant Science Center. It's, uh, that's in the north of Sweden. Um, and there I have a group with uh, six people we are right now. Mm. Yeah, and we do research on on basically the interaction of forest trees with ectomycorrhizal symbiotic awesome. fungi. 
Yes. That's awesome. So just like a brief summary of what is EM fungi or ecto mycorrhizal, all of that kind of yeah. good stuff. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's different, there's different types of mm. symbiotic interactions uh, of plants with, with fungi. The biggest group are um, basically abuscular mycorrhizal fungi. Mm. Yep. Um, but they only rarely interact with forest trees. And I'm working with ectomycorrhizal fungi. And they um, have evolved together with basically like flowery, well, with trees, basically. Mm-hmm. When, when vascular plants developed and trees developed, um, they, they, these kind of species helped the trees to, to develop and um, yeah, I'm working with this type of, of fungi. They live in forest soils and they make an interaction with the roots of the trees. Um, then you have also like um, ericoid mycorrhiza and orchid mycorrhiza. So oh, that's yeah. a different, they are different um, versions of, um, of endomycorrhiza. And endomycorrhiza means they grow into the cells of the plant. Okay. Whereas the ectomycorrhiza that I work with, they grow into the tissue of the plant, but they don't grow into the cell. They stay in between of the cells. So okay. that's the kind of feature of this kind of symbiosis. Yeah. Okay. Um what is the difference with uh, like the angiosperm and gymnosperm uh, EM fungi, if there even is a difference? Well, actually, there is um, with the, the ectomycorrhizal fungi, they there are generalists that would colonize both of them. And mm. then they may be specialists that thrive on different plant species. As concerning for the for the um, ectomycorrhizal symbiosis, um, you have basically ascomycetes and basiodomycete fungi that mm-hmm. colonize them. Um, yeah, and I wouldn't say that there's there's a rule to that. What is colonizing what? Okay. It maybe it's very it's very hard to ask for, to say and it's actually an industrial challenge as well because okay. we can't really predict which fungi is going to work well for example in like commercial fungal mixtures where you mm. would that you would mix into the soil and plant seedlings into if you okay. were to give your plant a, a benefit from that symbiosis it's very hard to know whether these fungi will actually colonize the plant and under which conditions and we know we know of some species that definitely work better with with some species than with others but um a general rule is is not i don't think that we we can actually make that Mm. and we're still trying to work and to identify how they communicate and what actually this kind of um difference or this like species dependence makes what what the molecules that that make this recognition either possible or not? Yeah, no, that's definitely my my main interest with plant and fungi interactions, just like how they even communicate or how they know what they need or who needs what and where. Um, what can you define what the heart hartig net is? Mm-hmm. I, am I saying that right? Yeah, it's the, I've never it's the said that. Yeah. <laughs> 
It has been discovered uh, in the beginning of the uh, 20th century by a person who was whose name was Hartig. His ah, last name. So that makes sense. That's what it was called after. And if you look at the the ectomycorrhiza, how it looks like, you will have the root, and then you imagine that there's a mantle around the root that covers the root, mm-hmm. and then to the outside of the mantle, there's something that's called the extramatricle hyphae. So they grow out into the soil, and they will gather nutrients and transport ah. them towards the root. Okay, and then you have the the hartig net and that's on the inside of the mantle so if you imagine that the the mantle is attached to the root surface mm-hmm. and the outermost root layer is called epidermis and these epidermis cells usually they are glued together by a layer that is rich in pectin that's like a that you would also put into your jam to make the mm. jam thicken yes that yes. is also the substance that is there in between oh. of the root cells and they that makes the cell adhesion this basically possible. And this pectin is released. Um, and this the cells that are usually attached, they are also released from each other. And then the fungus, the hyphae, they grow in between of the cells. And that looks like when you would mm. cut a cross-section through the root, you see that it's like a labyrinth through the oh. through, through the root, around the Ooh. outermost cells, and also depending on the species more in the underlying cells, which are then the next ones are the cortex cells, you will find that the fungus grows all around this Mm -hmm. area. And that the function of this is that you basically enhance the the area of contact between the two species because you have a lot of like round shapes with lots of fungus around and you have lots of these small round cells with the fungus around. So you have a a large surface of interaction. And that's very common, actually, between different symbioses. If you think about abuscular mycorrhizal fungi, where the fungus grows into the cells and then mm-hmm. it makes like a small like tree structure, yeah. that's also a large surface for interaction. Right. Or right. even bacterial symbiosis, uh, mm. where you have lots of like symbiosomes there. Um, mm. That yeah, is also different types. It's also enhancing the enhancing the interaction surface okay. to be able to exchange molecules with the partner hmm. would you that's have the heart net okay that's awesome do you have any photos of that what you're describing like um, um, like microscopy of that stuff at all yes yes okay I'll have to um like link some of those photos or put yeah. that up in the YouTube so pe- mm-hmm. people can see that because that'd be really cool I might have to get mm-hmm. some of those from you at some point yeah so. yeah I can send this it's a, it's a nice idea to show it because it's very yeah. intriguing how this looks like yeah. we have d- we have dyes in the lab so okay. we usually do these very thin sections through the roots okay. Um, and then we stain for the fungal cell walls mm-hmm. and for the plant cell walls okay, with so different, different dyes. Ones, yep. And then we can see it in, in fluorescence in, oh, wow. in an image. So that's really nice because it makes us when, you know, when we colonize plants in experiments, you see from the outside somewhat when a mycorrhiza forms, but mm. you don't know whether they have a heart net until you cut through them and put them under the microscope. Okay, that makes sense. And is there some sort of like trigger for these interactions or is it mostly like if they need nutrients or, uh, yeah, what kind of like, yeah. yeah. 
what drives the interaction? That's yeah. a very intriguing question. We have been we have been wondering this, and uh, this researchers that work a lot with um, nutrient exchange. Mm -hmm. uh, what the fungus usually provides to the tree is uh, nitrogen. And what the tree receives or what the fungus receives from the tree is sugars because mm -hmm. the tree is capable of making photosynthesis and the fungus is uh, relying on taking up sugars in order to, to grow. Mm -hmm. Whereas the fungus is very efficient because first of all, it has a wide network and then it has efficient uptake mechanisms for exploiting the soil or exploring the soil and absorbing nitrogen. Mm. So the, the nutrient deficiency, for example, the lack of carbon in the, the for the fungus um, that, of course, is, is one factor that the fungus right. wants to absorb carbon. And that's mm -hmm. also why it needs this partner. These fungi have evolved from uh, saprophytic fungi, which, were, which are able to live on dead material. Mm -hmm. But through that evolutionary process, they have lost some of the genes that they would require to degrade dead material. And that has, uh, I mean, this, this conversion of developing symbiosis mechanisms and losing the genes they would require for the saprophytic lifestyle mm, okay. is, um, has made that they can interact then with plants, which means that if you don't have a plant available, um, the fungus can survive sometime but uh, eventually it will then, the mycelium, that means that the, basically the vegetative form of the of the fungus that is in the soil that will eventually disappear when you don't have a fungal partner there okay so yeah it kind of dies off with the plant or kind of can move to a different area of interest it can move to a different plant for okay. example if you think about um, if you cut a forest and you replant small seedlings mm -hmm. um, it could potentially colonize these seedlings on another hand, the seedlings are very small, so how much carbon they really provide is also a question. Okay. Um, but they they would definitely they they colonize these roots. Okay. But if you compare for the fungus that lives with a huge big old tree yeah. that has lots of leaves to make photosynthesis right. as compared with a tiny seedling. <laughs> also the tiny seedling has a very limited root system. There is not much so much in the beginning. So um that is um yeah. But the, the question of what drives the symbiosis is yeah. a very interesting one because we we know from other types of symbiosis, like the abuscular mycorrhizal one, um, there's a very specific pathway identified of molecules that are released by the fungus and by the plant that make it possible for them to recognize each other. Mm. Whereas in the ectomycorrhizal fungi, we don't have so much knowledge yet oh, we know about okay we know about some peptides the, yeah. so the fungus makes small small very short um proteins basically mm -hmm. they're called peptide peptide signals and some of them are induced in during when the symbiosis formed that's why they were called mycorrhiza induced small secreted uh, mm. proteins MISPs. Okay. MISPs. <laughs> that's that's <MISPs. laughs> and um and these peptides, they um, they can be released by the fungus, mm -hmm. and then they are peptides that can bind to the wall of the the, uh, the plant, 
Um, what they really do there is uh, still to be discovered, but some okay. of these peptides are taken up into the plant cells and um, then they can interact there with transcription factors and alter gene expression in the plant for what we think a benefit is for repressing defense responses so that the, the plant uh, accepts the fungus as a friendly being and okay. is not defending itself as if it was pathogen because that's that's of course a, a required mechanism so that the plant knows that this fungus is beneficial right okay so it releases some sort of like tell sign that it's it's okay and I'm, I'm here mm -hmm. to just be yeah uninhabitable <laughs> yes okay yes that's really neat and so how does the uh, the fungus grow inside of the the root cell or how does it kind of meander its way in just with those same signals or I think that what it needs to do is it it needs to make its way by um, getting rid of the the barrier that the plant cells present so mm -hmm. the fungus can always, can always grow the hive, it can always um, um, elongate or they can split. So that is, um, that's a common mechanism of how the, the mycelium grows through the soil. Um, but when you have the colonization with the plant, um, there is some adhesion first going on where there's different uh, polysaccharide molecules at the surface of uh, the, the root that kind of make the fungus attach. Mm -hmm. um, and then this process starts to happen. And that's what my research group has been doing research on is how does the fungus communicate to the plant that it wants to grow in between the plant cells? Mm -hmm. And then the question, is it the plant that makes the way for that, that right. releases this pectin layer there? There is, there is enzymes like small tools that can um, degrade the pectin, that can okay. loosen it first. It's like a mesh. So yeah. you can loosen it and then you can degrade it. Oh. Um, or is it the fungus that does that? Yeah. So we have done some experiments with that and we have identified that there's one of these pectin degrading um, molecules or mm. proteins that is uh, produced by the fungus. And that's very much more produced when the fungus starts to interact with the plant. Um, and then we have uh, with this the fungus we work with um, is, is a tool. We have like a model relationship between um, poplar trees and fungus that is called Lacaria bicolor. Okay. And that fungus we are able to uh, do um, transformation with that, so we can alter the gene expression in the fungus, mm. and but as well in the plant. But that makes it possible for us to see if if a gene is induced. That always suggests that probably it has something to do with the process, and then we can uh, repress the induction of that gene and we have done that and we have seen that the fungus has less of a capacity to colonize the root when this oh. happens so that makes that then basically conclude that uh, the fungus contributes to this cell wall degradation mm -hmm. so that it can actually form the heart net it can push the cells uh, away and grow into that yeah. space in between the cells. That's true because you're like moving the cells at the same time. So that seems. Yeah, yeah that, that is actually a question that one could address and hasn't been done yet. Okay. There's lots of tools today developed 
to address mechanical strengths and forces and also mm. cell shape in plants. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we have uh, um, more and more tools for, for investigating that, but nothing has been done. We can really measure the, the strengths of the cell walls and the yeah. tension and different forces, basically applying yeah. physical principles to measure mm. phenomena inside this biological material so that would be actually cool to see how this yeah because even if you degrade that area still you maybe want to push these these cells and who is doing what and is the is the cell shape actually changing yeah Um, yeah physically or mm. yeah that's really interesting so what is like a typical day in your research kind of like or what is a typical day kind of look like for you I think that the the most characteristic for a typical day is mm-hmm. that there is no typical day. Okay, I like that answer. <laughs> I have it. I mean, I have been since I have my own research group. Mm-hmm. I uh, am much less in the lab. I'm okay. sometimes still doing experiments, especially when maybe people in my group they finish and change position. They move to a different lab when the contract is over and something needs to be finished. Mm-hmm. Then I have been in the lab and doing some experiments myself but otherwise I usually have meetings and I have decided it's always tricky for me to like days and weeks can go by just by having meetings and uh, you don't get anything else done than just advising other people (laughs) which is really great I really appreciate that to to Mm. be uh, a support for the postdocs and PhD students and other students in my group and talking with them about their plans and their results and um, giving them advice when there's any kind of uh, methodological problem Mm -hmm. luckily I've myself uh, had the benefit of very good technical education so I know a lot of um, methods and uh, troubleshooting is not so difficult for me oh so that's that is, awesome uh, <laughs> so I feel I, I have been always hearing from them that they appreciate that when they I get together yeah. one and one with them once a week or every other week depending how far advanced they are in their career mm-hmm. um, and then I have meetings with them But then I'm also teaching, so uh, I can also be involved in either being with the students. I'm also course organizer, which means I need to discuss with different teachers that are teaching on my course and organizing that, organizing exams, preparing PowerPoints or exercises. I've tried tried to refrain from only teaching with PowerPoints. I rather like to make like case scenarios, but Mm -hmm. that also demands time of thinking what the students will be capable of right and yeah and then I I feel like I, I love to work in collaboration so then I can have meetings with my collaboration partners and we discuss how to move ahead hmm. and then writing publications and writing grant applications wow. to get money into yeah. recruit people. <laughs> recruiting people is another activity okay. so I think there's lots of different activities from very scientific experimental things to more administrative and manager mm. activities to the really like recruiting people I thought that you get just thrown into that. When I started my group, I had the first people recruited and I had no idea how to recruit a person. It's like, right. how do you have an interview with somebody? Yeah. What should you ask? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Wow, that's, so, that's a lot of new stuff and mm-hmm. you're juggling a lot. And uh, 
I respect yes. that. That's pretty nice. It's definitely lots of different activities. And I think that's something that I have been appreciating that. Yeah. Even though I like to plan because otherwise uh, it's very hard to to be on time for deadlines. And mm -hmm. uh, even though if I plan, there's lots of things to do. And uh, yeah, there's always it's always short before deadlines, I can yeah. say. But <laughs> I also think this kind of spontaneous things that come in and people who need help or advice or they mm. come with really interesting results and it's always that's always fun yeah I'm in, I'm enjoying really the the interaction with the people in my group and also with the students is that's the the human side of of the job that yeah. I'm very much appreciating other people they feel right. when they get, go into a group leader position that they miss being in the lab mm -hmm. I don't I don't miss that I can say I enjoy when I'm there, but I also see that in the lab, it's very often unpredictable. You mm -hmm. do something that should be taking a certain time, but right. things go wrong. And yep. then you end up like in the end of the day, especially when you have kids and you need to pick them up. Right. Um, right, <laughs> school right. closes and yeah. they don't mind if you experiment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Yes. So doing, doing the more like computer work mm -hmm. um, is a little bit more flexible for especially that of being able to pick up somebody and then to continue even from home so that yeah, I feel nice. that this this gives me lots of freedom especially yeah. now since we're working mostly from home right it seems like you got a lot of diversity which is something that I find hard with my jobs that I do I I get not bored but uh I don't really like the same repetitive thing every day and um yeah that sounds sounds like something up my alley where it's kind of a different feel every day but you know you're doing something so that's mm. uh that's pretty neat um can we let's backtrack and ask about what oxen and other uh like hormones or how is are those things important in these interactions yeah, that's actually one of Oxen has been my little friend with me <laughs> since my PhD. Yes. Um, Oxen is a, it's a plant hormone. So also plants have hormones and they're called hormones because they act in very small quantities. Mm. So they are, we all, yeah, there are also steroid hormones that, that uh, like we in humans here yeah, would mm -hmm. be having steroids as, as hormones. Um, and plants do have some of those as well, but auxin is a small, small molecule that comes basically from an amino acid tryptophan. Okay. Um, and that um, auxin is, it's very um, active in small concentrations, so it can trigger the expression of certain genes. Mm -hmm. And auxin is also distributed in a gradient. And that gradient um, is found, for example, in the root tip. Um, it's found in the in the cambium that are the cells around the stem that divide and make the wood, for example, and okay. the phloem outside. So even there, we have a gradient, um, and even the shoot, it, it's a, okay. appearing as a gradient, and that gradient gives uh, positional information to cells. So you know, a plant is built up of many different cells with many different functions. Mm -hmm. And even in the root, you will have the stem cells that are 
look like ensuring that the root continues to grow and that mm. there will be new cells developing and then you will have out of the cells that divide they need to differentiate either they become the epidermis the outermost or the cortex or maybe become the vascular system that will be transporting water and nutrients through the root mm. you can yeah. also have the root cap um, and auxin is very important in that process as it's uh, distributed in a gradient in the root tip and helps okay. to define um, stem cell niche, cell division, but also uh, helping in the distribution, um, okay. the differentiation of the cell. And what happens when the mycorrhiza forms is, first of all, also some ectomycorrhizal fungi are capable of producing auxin. Oh. And there's also um also some like microorganisms like bacteria they are also able to produce auxin and it has been suggested that this auxin production by microorganism has something to do with like defense response or communication because today we still don't really know if that auxin produced for example in a fungus has a function for the fungus itself right you know a lot oh. about auxin about in the plant but yeah. it's like what is actually doing in the fungus oh um, so it could be so, like helping the plant or you think maybe it's just like for itself, but we don't know kind of thing or. Yeah, yeah we, we have been trying to um, alter auxin production in the, our fungus that we work with in order to see what is this going to do with the plant. Mm. But we find that it's extremely difficult to know if the production is actually altered. It's almost like whenever we measure we measure maybe in one rep in one experiment and then we mm -hmm. have five replicates and they are close together and everything's fine and then the next experiment also the replicates are close together but they completely at a different value okay and yeah. it's almost as if there was some kind of environmental factor that yeah. is controlling auxin production inside the fungus but we don't know that factor yet and okay. we have been we have been um thinking that it might be sugars okay. so i have been this is a very recent experiment that a student of mine has done it's like trying to grow the fungus on more or less sugar and seeing mm. if the production of auxin in the fungus has changed mm -hmm. because my idea was if auxin if you provide auxin it, it depends on the concentration but you can trigger root elongation or root branching when you apply this okay if you apply uh, in, like if you apply high concentration you will reduce the root growth um so it's uh, because it's this kind of gradient thing it really depends mm. how much it is um, but my hypothesis was maybe if if low sugar concentration trigger auxin production by the fungus that may be a way for the fungus to attract the root if the mm. roots branch and grow towards the mycelium then it could start oh. making a symbiosis and could get the sugar that it is lacking yeah. So it's nothing like that, that we yeah. are sure about today. We see right. that definitely there is a correlation when you have high sugar, there seems to be a lower auxin production that when you mm. have low sugar in the fungus. So they, that is something I think that we will investigate further when, really to neat. see if that is, if that is true. Okay. Interestingly, when, when we monitor the auxin signaling, so basically, when you have lots of auxin, you imagine mm. that you have a lot of signaling and whatever kind of auxin responsive genes there are, they will be they will be triggered to to produce mm. proteins. Um, we we did an uh, experiment um, 
where we colonize roots that have a marker for auxins so we can see under the microscope if there's lots of auxin signaling or not. And what we see is when the mycorrhiza forms, the auxin signaling in the root goes down. And that is counterintuitive because the fungus produces auxin and the fungus is in very close contact with the root. Right. So why would the signaling in the root go down? But we also can see more degradation products of auxin. So mm. probably either the fungus or the plant is trying to cope with this excess auxin oh. and degrades it. And in the same time, we see an arrest of the root growth, which also suggests that there's less auxin signaling going on in the road. And that's something we are trying to investigate already on an anatomical level to mm -hmm. see, are there all the cells still there? And what is happening to the cell division when the mycorrhiza forms? Why is the root so round? Why is it growing so slowly or not yeah. at all? Yeah, so. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, uh, so how are you measuring um, the levels of auxin then? What we are using is two different methods um, that we use for visualizing it inside the, the cell. Mm -hmm. So uh, on or inside the root, on one hand, you can visualize the auxin signaling, which means oh. we use, you know, a, a gene is driven, the expression of a gene is mm -hmm. driven by a promoter, which will define when the gene is expressed, how much is it expressed, and where it is expressed in a in a part of whatever, in a human, in a plant, <laughs> right. that's very basic biology. So that's, um, that's basically in, in all organisms that that mm -hmm. will, that will happen. Um, of course, in, in multicellular organisms, that's more with the where <laughs> that's more important there. Mm -hmm. um, but this promoter, we have, uh, there's an auxin, there can be auxin responsive elements in a promoter that make the gene that is controlled by that promoter. Mm. Okay. Um, be expressed when auxin is there. So what one has done is that was already in the 90s, uh, researchers have taken this auxin responsive elements, fused a lot of them together, made an artificial auxin responsive promoter, mm. and then connected. And then you can connect different things to it. Let's say we connect a fluorescent protein to that. So then if you have high auxin levels, that auxin will trigger this activity of that artificial promoter and you will produce lots of the fluorescent protein. Okay. And you then, if you look under the microscope in the root, you will see that it's, it's very bright. Yes. So you can see that there's high auxin signaling ongoing. Okay. Whereas when there's, for example, no fluorescence visible, mm -hmm. then you know, well, there's no low auxin, not much auxin signaling ongoing. Right. Wow. But we have also a different tool today that allows us to measure auxin more in an indirect way instead of just looking how much auxin signaling is there. Yeah, like the genetics. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that we and there we use a protein basically. And that's a protein. Now it's not a promoter, it's a protein that is degraded when there's auxin. Mm. So if, and that's then the inverse, then you, if you see fluorescence of that protein, because it's also fused to a fluorescence protein, right. uh, then there's low, there's low auxin there. So the protein is degraded by auxin. If you don't see the protein, then there's high auxin. Right. If okay. you see the protein, then there's low auxin because right. it's not degraded. <laughs> so that's the opposite of to the other markers. So we have yeah. these different markers and they are okay. very powerful tools 
because we can make genetic modification of our trees. We work with poplar there. Okay. We can introduce these markers into the trees in order to see in the lab how oxen signaling mm. is happening uh, when it's done colonizing by the fungus, for example. So this, it's a, I think lots of people when they think, think of genetically modified plants, they right. think of better growth, maybe resistance, they think of Monsanto, but mm -hmm. for us, it's really to see, for example, where a plant hormone is acting. And the only purpose of those plants is fundamental biology of understanding a mechanism right so right there's really no point of planting these plants out yeah into the yeah wild. gmos is a totally broad and kind of overcompassing term you can easily mm. genetically modify but yeah you don't have to sell it or yeah <laughs> use yeah. it as a crop or something uh mm. do do we know how long it takes from like the first encounter of like a fungus touching the root to actually creating the symbiosis like on like a time scale how long does that usually take we when we do that in the lab and mm -hmm. then we do it on a on a petri plate petri mm -hmm. dish so it's it's an uh, what is called an axonic system you have basically it's sterile you have just right. some agar media and then you have your plant there and then you put the fungus on top and then mm -hmm. you leave it so there's no other partners in that setting you usually have after about three days you see the first hyphae uh -huh. adhering to the road okay. after then about seven days seven to 14 days mm -hmm. you see a, a mantle forming and then between 14 and 21 days you see the hardtick net forming so oh, wow. then we think that it's then it's starting to be a functional mycorrhiza. With the hardtick net, it should be able to transfer nutrients between plant and fungus because that's where this exchange is happening. So for us, the hardtick, the presence of the hardtick net is an indication for functional mycorrhiza. Mm -hmm. um, when you do it in the soil, then we would, for example, take liquid fungal cultures. And we pre-grow this fungus and then we put it in a blender to, to mix it. Yeah. And then that's mixed with the soil. Um, and then you plant a plant into that soil. Then it's a little bit longer because the fungus is kind of distributed everywhere in the soil and it needs to first reach the root. When we do it on these plates, we grow the fungus on a on a membrane and we kind of put it on the roots. And immediately when we put it there, oh. the fungus and the root will be in contact. Okay. So as in the soil system, it needs a bit longer. And usually we leave it for like six weeks in there to, to see mycorrhiza developing. It's very handy that there's so many different systems that work yeah. because the soil system has been has been especially helpful when we work with uh, gymnosperms like pine and mm -hmm. spruce because we have small seedlings so you can put the, the seeds on there. Whereas with poplar, oh, we true, always yeah. work with cuttings. Yeah. So then you can put them in these small baskets with soil and you put the fungus in and you let them grow over there for six weeks. Hmm. It would, being out in the wild, be longer then? Um, or do you think it would be the same as what you did with the the soil and the blender there's out in the wild there has been very recently come a store, uh, publication out where they have tried to to take soil from the wild mm -hmm. and plant uh, small poplar trees into this soil okay. so that means in that soil there's lots of different bacteria and fungi 
Um, and then they have monitored how the colonization was ongoing. And um, basically after different time points, taken out the plants and uh, analyzed which kind of fungi right. and which kind of bacteria were on the roots. Yeah. And that was very interesting that you could see that the first phase of colonization was mm mostly by saprophytic fungi so they kind of realized there's some sugar source so they throw themselves onto the roots and then there must be a signal exchange ongoing mm. with the plant so that the plant um, restricts this fungi because well it doesn't want to be eaten up by <laughs> something yeah, yeah. so uh, and that this this uh, gets then gradually replaced by the symbiotic fungi over time so that took I think the experiment was done up to 50 days if I remember well so that was a longer experiment okay but but generally even when you have seedlings from the from the nursery for example um, in a nursery usually you have fertilization and high humidity so the fungi that will spontaneously colonize the roots there uh, will be fungi that are thriving with high nitrogen and and high water high humidity mm. but when you plant these fun these plants uh, out into the forest um, the forest soils can be rather poor in nutrients and they can be also very dry and mm. sandy soils and then you also have this phase of replacement of the fungi that takes some time um, and that in some cases can restrict the like the takeoff of the seedlings when they are there so that's why People have tried to introduce fungi into the nursery already that are matching the ones that will be out on the sites where the plants will be planted out right. to, to try to make this kind of like a phase of, of replacement of fungi mm. um, that are beneficial for the plants a bit more smooth and shorter. Hmm. So what would be the opposite? I mean, this way you're kind of saying to plant in certain areas or take soil what if you took uh like cut down some forest and how does that change the soil uh microbiome or the connections underneath there's lots of uh different um things that are happening when you cut down a forest mm. in sweden it's very typical to do clear cutting which means you cut all the trees yep. um and then you can imagine that when you have cut down the trees, you, you get less shading, mm -hmm. um, you get less like humus formation because there's less oh, like right. biological material yeah. falling onto the soil. That's going to cause pH changes, humidity changes. Oh, wow. You can have soil erosion. You can all kind. There's all kind of physical things that are happening on on such a site. On the same time, you will have the fungi usually they don't take out the root system. There's some uh, right. strategies where they take out the, the trees, um, basically the, the everything the that is left, wow. the whole thing. Um, but usually they try to leave them mm -hmm. and that will me, that may make the fungi stay for a while. Then right. they go, I mean, when the roots die, they go over into a saprophytic phase and they will still be able to use that dead material. Okay. Um, but eventually they will then die. Spores can, they can survive longer, but the mycelium is usually restricted. So, and in, in Sweden, the sites are replanted after about two years. Um, so that time 
you can usually see that's a reduction of fungal fungal biomass and mycelium mm. there. So there we have a research project where we are investigating if gap cutting could be a solution. So there's, a, there's an experimental site uh, where a forest industry that is one of our partners in that project, they have cut round circular gaps of 70, 55 and 35 diameter, uh, meters mm. in diameter. Okay. And so we went in and took soil samples of these. Um, and we are now in the phase of analyzing this, this data from these samples because you need to first extract the DNA from whatever there is in the soil and then we sequence it. Um, and that will give us kind of a, a, an identifier of which kind of fungi they are. There's lots of databases that you can map this, this kind of uh, the sequencing information to and then you can get an, an idea of what the composition is. Mm. And the relative abundance as well, and you can do a biodiversity analysis on that. Okay. And we are trying to find out if the smaller gaps would be more beneficial for conserving the fungal biodiversity as compared to the larger gaps. Of course, there's always the question if that is actually an attractive method for the forest industry to harvest, mm. because they also have criteria for efficiency, for example. And yeah, yeah. but yeah. Um, at least so, that, that that setup was made by the by the forest industry initially. So we have the kind of the support that that is is a setup that could be interesting. So explain the gap thing again. You're saying you cut a gap in like a, the tree entirely, or the soil, or are you? Yeah, explain explain the yeah. gap thing one more time. You have, you have the forest yeah. and you go in and you cut a gap of, let's say, 35 meter in diameter. In that area, you cut all the trees. Oh, okay. But around that gap, you have still lots of trees. Okay. So, I so got you. In, um, in other settings, um, people have tried when they do clear cutting mm -hmm. to leave what they identify as a mother tree. Also, that identification is very it's yeah. very hard. Is yeah. it an old tree? Is it a younger tree? You yeah. don't analyze what is on the roots, what's the fungi right. that are there. So you just look at the tree and from, yeah. from the above ground thing and try to decide which one you would keep. Right. Um, mm. And when they do that, they see that the fungal biodiversity, like 10 meter around the tree, is conserved better as oh. if they had taken out that tree. But if you imagine that you leave these mother trees mm -hmm. once in a while and that kind of like, well, 10 meter is not so much mm -hmm. after 15 meter, 20 meter, you lose that kind of beneficial effect on that tree. So now if we have our gaps that are 35 meter in diameter, right, right. well, okay. if you take like 10 meter from both edges inside, then you have like, then you still have some space in the middle. It's very, it's going to be very interesting to see yeah. how that biodiversity is affected in these gaps, because that could lead to a recommendation that instead of doing clear cutting or saving maybe a few mother trees, if the industry could be doing more mm -hmm. gap cutting and leaving okay. forest patches between the gaps, um, yeah, yeah, could be better for habitats and for for also the the soil in general. Okay. And what are retention trees? I, I have no idea what this this is. 
that's basically when you decide uh, about a few trees on a large site where you would do clear cutting that you conserve this. You retain them. They are going to be oh, standing there. Like the that's main ones. Yeah. Okay. Some some call them mother trees. Some call them retention trees. Oh, okay. So okay. they are basically there to try to to save a bit of the soil biodiversity. And also when you plant seedlings, um, if you plant seedlings of a similar tree type, mm-hmm. tree species close to such a mother tree, because this the it's it's a little bit like a human. Uh, gut microbiome also a tree has their microbiome Mm -hmm. and that will depend it will depend on the age of the tree but it will also depend on the species of the tree oh that's so if you then plant young trees around such a tree yeah these young trees can be colonizing by like the the, they will find the right community of fungi there Mm. Of course, there's this age difference, and maybe a younger tree wants to have some different fungi as compared to the older. But if you, I mean, there's in general, there's the right species there that will be able to colonize that young seedling species as well. Hmm. There have been some theories as well that when you um, that when you connect a tree to a fungus, to mm-hmm. a seedling, mm-hmm. that there could be some kind of uh, exchange from the large tree to the smaller trees yeah. and maybe some benefit of this, like the, the seedlings. If you imagine a, a tree, they 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 get the seeds fall on the ground and they're small seedlings right. growing up that they would be supported by the older mm-hmm. trees. So like in the shade and yeah. Oh, yeah. that's really neat. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Um, how can people help restore some close to like extinct plants or fungi or how can people kind of help become aware of endangered species? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. So uh, generally I would recommend when people do mushroom hunting, they Mm -hmm. like to collect mushrooms they take a knife with them mm-hmm. and they cut the base of the mushroom. Okay. <laughs> That's the first recommendation that okay. everybody can help with yeah. because that will that will not impact the mycelium that is in the soil and that we don't right. see. If you rip them out, you kind of like damage that mycelium in a way okay so that's what everybody can do okay then (laughs) then maybe what can the the like foresters do yeah i think it clearly is that the clear cutting is not a good way of cutting the 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 forest Mm -hmm. i can understand that there is questions of big machines there is questions of yield and that perspective is of course also something that is relevant and if i as a biologist say oh you should just cut down one tree one tree and then leave the others there and then you go somewhere else that's not feasible for them so yeah plant a tree every time you cut a tree yeah it's a lot of work too Yeah, indeed. But I think in generally considering considering once you cut, what will you replant mm-hmm. and see that you replant it, that you replant it rather quickly and that you try to like try to give a possibility for this fungi to be conserved in the soil. Mm-hmm. Um, there can be also the question if you should inoculate this fungal inoculation. Um, like mixtures that one can buy 
And it's very hard to say that you can also buy them for crop plants. Um, and even there, when people do experiments, sometimes they work well, sometimes they don't work at all. Mm. And it seems to very to be very much environmentally dependent. So that makes it very hard for us to say to recommend it or not recommend it. Okay. Um, so that, of course, is a, is a rather difficult question. If it's not large scale, what one always could do is take some soil from the side where the trees should be planted and mix that into commercial soil to, to grow right, plants in that right. mixture. Because then at least you get the right fungi there that will be relevant for the trees. Mm -hmm. yeah. But of course, that on large scale is also not recommended because if you take out a lot of soil, you yeah. also harm the mycelium in the soil there. <laughs> it, it, I think it always de depends on this on the scale. Um, but what uh, we as in research are trying to do is to trying to identify ways of predicting which fungi will first colonize certain right. species, but also give an advantage to this to this tree species, because mm. that's not always. That's not always given just because a fungus is making a mycorrhizae with a tree. It still may depend on the soil and other components, whether it really is giving a benefit. Mm. So yeah. if we can predict this better, we could also give better recommendations so that the whole inoculation can be more of a, a thing that one does. Yeah, because today, today it's much done on, on truffle. I mean, oh, okay. hazelnut trees, and they inoculate it with truffle mycelia mm. so that when you plant them in your garden, you will get nice truffles, well. maybe. Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's a big market. <laughs> there's lots of funding there as well. There's lots of interest, and it's a luxury product. So yeah, even true. if the tree is a bit more expensive, that doesn't matter. But for the forest industries, it's quickly coming down to what does it cost? How can mm. we grow this fungi? Because you may identify fungus that is super beneficial for the tree, but it's awful to culture it. Mm, so then it's not yeah. available. There's so many different factors that must be given for it to work in a large scale. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then still the question, will it, will it give the tree a benefit on the specific side it's planted to or not? Right. So I know you have so many like interests and research topics. What would be the one research if you had unlimited like funds? What would you uh, want to look into more if you had to narrow it down? <laughs> um, I'm very interested in understanding the interaction of genotypes with fungi. I'm actually, and that in a way, it requires lots of background in genetic and I don't have that, mm. but I think that's definitely worth uh, investing to and figuring out more. Okay. In Sweden, we still have very much mixed forests, but we are going more and more into uh, like, like seed orchards. And then we look for plus trees and we look for trees that grow better. Mm -hmm. Now there's a focus maybe on, on breeding trees that are more rich in extractives from the bark, um, which I, I'm also working in, in a project of different extractives. How are they in the roots and what do they mean for the interaction with the fungi? Mm -hmm. But whenever we breed, we consider mostly the the above ground tissues. We want to have a lot of wood because that's that's the resource that the industry wants to produce. 
But when we breed and we breed for certain traits, um, we don't consider how these trees are going to be impacting the soils mm -hmm. and how well they interact with the uh, fungi and also right. with bacteria and what their how much they can be helped by this. Right. So I would say that's something that is definitely worth broadening the perspective so mm -hmm. that uh, plant breeding involves as well checking for the capacity of these new, better performing trees, um, interaction with their, their soil microbiome to understand that we, that we don't that we don't destroy the soils because that's that's the resource. I mean, whatever we plant, yeah. we need to have a good soil for it yep. to grow and to thrive. And if we destroy the soil, yeah, we have an issue. <laughs> yeah, it all stems <laughs> from the soil. Yeah, and Definitely. the the I think the other part is that it's discussed if ectomycorrhizal fungi are always so beneficial, especially when they are in very poor nutrient soils, mm. because the fungus itself needs a certain amount of nitrogen to grow. So it would will receive carbon from the mm. plant. It will match up, will take up nitrogen from the soil and match up the amount of carbon to grow. And only when it has more nitrogen than it has carbon, it right. will give it to the plant. Right. So. This that is kind sense. of the, the market theory, something that is um, also investigated. And uh, we don't know how beneficial really this, this symbiosis is in nutrient-poor soils. But the ectomycorrhizal fungi have benefits when it comes to drought resistance mm -hmm. because they make a mantle around the root. They also usually improve uh, nitrogen use efficiency which means the water transported through the plants for taking up the nitrogen mm. um, so if that can be improved the plant can save water basically it right, can still right. take up nitrogen but doesn't have to be transporting so much water which means also evaporating lots of water wow um, and I think as well, uh, what we are still investigating, how this symbiosis can make plants more resistant to above ground pathogens or pests. Mm -hmm. So in that way, I think understanding a bit more the other benefits of the mycorrhiza, especially as we are facing climate challenges, more longer drought periods, for example, and also increasing spread of pests, especially to colder regions where now mm. new pests are actually surviving yeah. the winter and are attacking the trees. So I think mm. they're understanding if this ectomycorrhizal fungi can have benefits mm. above the um, yeah above only the nut nutrition will be very important and can be an important tool as well so that we don't start to like distribute more chemicals in our forest yeah. because the trees are attacked but we we think i think that's that's the important thing for the future to try to get a more um a full picture to take into account genotypes and soils and pests and the interaction between them as well right and to, to try to, to manage the, the forest for the best that we can, still considering that we as humans, we need material from there as well, mm. but to, to do it in a, in a reasonable way and responsible way for, for right. the forest and our soils. Right. Is that what you think your like, biggest fear with your field of study would be is that we never get past the 
chemicals or what would be your biggest fear? I wonder sometimes if we are smart enough. It's meant <laughs> there's so many there's so many researchers yeah. uh, doing like investigating their their question. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's also researchers that try to put it all together, but I can see that it's so. I mean, if you imagine all the data that there is and how complex it is, if you think about climate scenarios, you can have different scenarios. They all tell us we have an issue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but how they exactly predict the future changes a bit, and I think that is probably also one of the challenges with forestry in the future. Mm, right. That there's the people working on soils, and there's the people working on tree genotypes, and there's people like me working on molecular interaction. Mm-hmm. I'm often in these very simplified systems, um, but trying to connect this and trying to connect the basic biology to bigger predictions. I work with one tree and one fungus. How predictable? How how is that in another tree species? Is that the same? So we need yeah. to kind of scale up to a more ecologically relevant level. Mm. Um, and then also the areas need to be connect, connected so that we, we really know what we face in the future and how we do that best. And I think that's a very big challenge. And yeah. yeah as I say, I'm wondering if we as humans are capable of seeing (laughs) such a big picture. Valid point. (laughs) Interesting. What would you say you're most excited for then? Well, we'll switch it on the happy side. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'm excited for when we know more about how to use soil uh, bacteria and fungi Mm -hmm. to, to enhance tree growth when we find a way to, for example, fertilize in a way that benefits trees and microorganisms. And I'm looking forward to a more um, whole level perspective. And I Mm. think we can already start with that on a smaller level, even if we don't understand all of it together. Um, I think that's what I'm excited about, that this 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 interest and this uh, rising interest in understanding what's happening in the soil and how the trees and also other plants interact yeah. with soil microbiomes yeah. and i think there's a powerful resource there if we understand that better that we can both protect it better but also use it for our advantage true uh, do you have a favorite like uh fungi fact or a ectomycorrhizal fact that you don't think people know about <laughs> Um, oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I I think one of the fascinating things is that the mycorrhiza are mm. as diverse visually underground yeah. as the fungi, the, the, the mushrooms that you pick, mm-hmm. the fruiting bodies above ground. Mm. So lots of people, when they go in the forest, they look for the above ground but if you imagine that you can have a root system that has very fluffy red mycorrhiza very smooth yellow ones very black ones some fungi look like they make like small steel threads so so like black and thick the hyphae are some are very white i mean this variety of uh, of mycorrhiza that's below ground and it's I don't know if it's as big as the variety of <laughs> fruiting bodies above ground, mm-hmm. but I think something that people can think about. And yeah, think that's about. true. Like there's, there's so much more than what I actually see. Yes, yes. 
I, I agree. That's, that is something that I never think of too. It's so diverse and you can maybe help I, identify some things just by on the mycelium or um, stuff like that. So that is mm-hmm. cool. Thanks for the fact. Yeah, uh, you're welcome. Yeah. The last topic I want to touch on is uh, your, um, your Flora L design. Can you mm-hmm. give me a little rundown on what that is and what you do with that? Yeah, well, floral design, that was an idea that um, I think I had more than five years ago. And first, it was just an idea that was like running around in my head, <laughs> keeping me awake at nights. Um, but about a year ago, uh, actually, I, I decided to, it was two years ago, I decided to do something about it. Okay. Um, I have been involved in outreach activities very frequently and very happily to try to interact with society and tell people what we are doing in the lab, because I think a lot of fear about plant biology lots of people are connecting it to monsanto mm. and what are they doing okay. so on the other hand there's lots of uh, interesting and wonderful research done and so much more knowledge that is established that people should be aware about so i mm. think as a researcher we have um we have a mission and a responsibility to reach out to society. And I think we have that responsibility, even if we are shy or if we are uncomfortable with it. So that's, uh, I wouldn't say that there's a, there's a good reason to hide behind one's personality when it comes to that. There's many different ways of reaching out, but I have been enjoying interacting and we had this soapbox science event where we were standing on a box in town and like talking without a microphone to people walking by this was probably the most extreme way (laughs) but uh, I have seen that when I was present at outreach events I usually brought a microscope and some plant sections and people would look through the microscope and say wow I've never seen this what's that that's beautiful and so I noticed that me being a scientist and doing lots of microscopy, I'm used to seeing mm-hmm. this. And I can also get distracted if I if I sit in front of the microscope, I'm looking for something and I just see beautiful things. Yeah. And there's like coming out pictures of beautiful things. And then it's like, oh yeah, what was actually my question? What was I looking for? <laughs> so it's it's so beautiful. And I, I have a passion of sewing and working with uh, with textiles, making clothing for my children or myself and mm-hmm. even home decoration. So I thought maybe these microscopy images can be used to make a pattern uh, that can be printed yes, on I textiles. So I, I took an image, I made a pattern just as I thought one could make a pattern. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I sent it to a print on demand company. And a few weeks later I had it on fabric and I was like, well, that was actually possible. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, it was so cool. It was it was astonishing, and so there, then uh, I had um, two colleagues and friends who were also postdocs uh, at Umeå Plant Science Center back then, and I told them about that, and they also loved to to work with textiles. So we okay. started making something together. We got some help from the uh, com- from the university's uh, basically idea incubator. When you have an idea that is more like a commercial idea, you can go to them and right. get some help, get some discussions, mm-hmm. make a business plan and everything that we had to do to because for us it's like well that's nice it's always it's you know it's it's a nice to have it's not a must have yeah yeah. (laughs) 
So I eventually ended up at the um, arts incubator in in Umeå, where I was with other people that were working more with artistic ideas from music to photography to design. And that was the right place for me to be because I didn't have a technical invention. It wasn't a machine or anything that would save the planet. It was a way to spread knowledge through uh, a pretty design on textiles. And then we we tried to make uh, products from that. We thought mm. a lot about, I mean, it's, it's, and in a way it's producing a product and we don't want to overproduce. So we decided to go for print on demand services where we upload our designs like, like Spoonflower and Society6. So if you order a cup from there or cushion from there, they print it for you. They have okay. lots of designs in the databases and facilities, but there's nothing kept in stock uh, oh, with nice. designs already on. But then we also found some uh, production because Society6 and produces uh, so far in the US with our products. And as we in Europe, we wanted to also make things available here. Mm-hmm. And um, I think even though it's good that it's print on demand, if I would have a wish, I would wish that they would source their materials even more carefully mm. and go more for environmental friendly products. Okay. Yeah. So it's a little bit this like we want to have it available, but it's right. it's okay. I can sleep at night with yeah, that. But I would be Yeah, yeah. Um and I have I have like a cup here, for example. Yes. <laughs> From there. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely so. link your uh, website below because that's Mm. it's really pretty like seeing yourself on Instagram or Mm. like you said had like the uh dandelion um Mm. cross-section apron yeah yeah that was yeah and it's cool (laughs) it has quite of it's had kind of developed so we we then first got a production also where we send really uh we send fabric to print and then we have a, a sewing company that we partnered up that is making cushion covers and aprons and table mm. runners for us for example there's lots of home decoration but yeah. also some okay. kitchen textiles um and we also have uh, fabrics by the meter but we decided to print that on linen because for us that seemed to be the one of the most environmentally friendly textiles mm-hmm. it's long living it's very beautiful there's the many different um like types of linen that you can get lighter ones for clothing or more robust ones for for bags for example and our idea was to make conference bags with that actually to start up with that and we developed a bag um way that is where the handles are put on with a button so you can take off the handles and button the whole thing together into a cushion cover so that after the conference you could use it as a cushion cover on your sofa and you wouldn't end up with 10 bags after 10 conferences wow that's really that's really uh, thought out I love that yeah (laughs) and then 2020 came with the pandemic and there was no conference (laughs) so you have a plan and then life happens yep so then we decided to to put more effort onto our web shop and to build that up and it's lovely I I so much enjoy when somebody orders something and I pack a package and Mm. it's like packing Christmas gifts (laughs) the first package I sent I was really nervous I had never sold anything maybe something secondhand that I I had like a bike or something (laughs) but selling something that we had produced it was like oh my gosh it's like imagine they don't like it and 
but um, people have really appreciated what we yeah. make and it's 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 fantastic to see it from a microscopy image becoming mm -hmm. a pattern we color change them as well okay um so that we we have been thinking more in collections to see which colors go together okay. but also between collections we have now we had a um we have just released our spring summer collections with some brighter colors and okay. then we will have a, a fall collection with some maybe a little bit darker colors maybe also choosing the plant species like pine or mm. spruce for like christmas yes. uh, oh that's but, really cool yeah you so that's also so nice yeah with the first images that we have used were mostly arabidopsis and poplar because that that's sense. That was material that we had, but yep. since then, I mean, I've bought some ready-made slices. I've made some when I anyway were doing an, an experiment. I maybe included a dandelion that I had found outside mm -hmm. the university in the grass, and I make a section. It it's very easy because we don't need any replicates for that, and it's like you do mm -hmm. it, and when you anyway you do that, you include one more sample, and then you get a nice design, and that allows us to talk about these plants and to, to gather some interesting facts about them mm -hmm. and to show what they look like from the inside to explain how anatomy is looking like in a plant, what the different cells are doing yeah. and to, to show that beauty of the plant under the microscope also to people who usually don't see it mm -hmm. and then they can get of course the, the different products that we have and have a fancy yeah table yeah. table runner or a, an apron with a dandelion design on yes. that is bright and colorful so it's it's really interesting and maybe it's the same about my research job that I love about the flora l mm -hmm. it's so many different from the lab to the design to the yeah. printing to then I get a box with all these things so then I put all the labels <laughs> on I I design the labels I need to print them oh gosh, uh, yes. so updating the website there's so many different things to be oh, done about that <laughs> yeah so even that is no day is is similar when I, I work now 20 percent mm -hmm. uh, for well I work more than 20 percent but uh, let's say I, I'm working 80 percent of the university and I'm 20 percent off to work for Flora L and then I work okay. off also evenings and weekends so it's becoming more than 20 percent but at least I have two afternoons per week yeah um, where I can do something and now that I have the podcast that also makes me yeah. makes it possible for me to interview people during daytime and I don't That's have true. to do it all in the evening but that depends also how they are available but it gives me some freedom to yeah to reach out to go to shops to see we have some retailers as well but of course with the pandemic that hasn't been easy because lots of I think museums and places where we could yeah. sell they they are not open now oh yeah so, wow yeah that makes sense it's a whole thing hmm yeah, no, that's that's really cool. I I need to look at your website. That would be cool to get my mom one of those uh, table yeah. runners. She <laughs> yeah. she likes those, so yeah, that's it. cool. Yeah, yeah, we have been we have been really from the start decided to launch it with worldwide delivery mm -hmm. because we thought that we are also reaching out 
to scientists and yeah. that's an international community and also one of my partners Melissa she has moved back to Canada since okay. then so of course also her network they right. like to buy from us right. um, and it's it's great I mean it's slow with the pandemic but mm-hmm. things have recovered pretty much now I think even though the problems are still there um, the the post delivery has adjusted yeah <laughs> so <laughs> we don't have like six to eight weeks delivery time yeah. to Canada anymore you know it goes That's quicker nice. um, and it's uh yeah, it's it's pleasant to see, and I I enjoy so much seeing also that we have people from all over the world who listen to the podcast. Yeah, I think that's the same for you. It's like yeah. when, you, when you look where people are coming from that listen. <laughs> yeah, I had no idea that like Australia, Singapore, like all these places. I was like, all right, mm. cool. That's mm. that's yeah. It's cool to have a nice outreach of not even just scientists, like with the floral design, like you're getting people interested in plants just because, I mean, they look pretty or it's something different. Um, so th- I really like that about uh, your yeah. company. So thank you yeah, for thank doing you. that for people. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's great. And we have now, you know, the first, of course, the first people that buy, they are from our network, but mm-hmm. now we have gotten the first people buying that we didn't know. And that's so exciting. Yeah. And then of course I, I'm curious. So I asked them how they got aware of it and maybe they got a gift from us. Maybe they saw us at one of the, the retailing stores mm-hmm. and that's so cool. That means like, Oh, now we are really reaching out to people yeah who we wouldn't have been able to reach without this. Yeah, I mean, our colleagues use. and friends and family, we can reach them in other ways. Mm-hmm. But uh, this is, uh, and it's great. I, I'm, I'm maybe having a tendency of not celebrating these things often enough. Yeah, <laughs> I move on to the next task. <laughs> but uh, it has been really, really, um, I've really appreciated this when this comes in and it feels like a very special moment. Awesome. Uh, So do you have any resources for people uh, to get to know a little bit more about your research or uh, just to understand more around this topic? Either, yeah, videos, any, anything I can post below. So um, I think if people want to learn more about my research, they can uh, look at the upsc.se website. That's the Umeå Plant Science Center. That's where I have my research group. Mm-hmm. And there under research, you can find my profile under Judith Lundberg-Felten um, and read more about me. And there you also have my contact to reaching out to me. Mm-hmm. Um, then we, you can find me at flora-l.com uh, and on our Instagram on flora.l.design. And we also have a Facebook page but I think that all links together when you go to our website you can go to our Facebook as well find me on the Flora and Friends Your Botanical Cup of Tea podcast and that's like on Spotify and Apple and Deezer and Google Podcasts so that can be found everywhere and on our website as well I think one nice resource if people want to learn more about mycorrhiza Mm -hmm. there are two websites that I think I just need to see that I give you the right link Um, there is one website that is called uh, DEMI uh, D-E-E-M-I Y Y in the end dot D-E and there's lots of um, 
pictures of mycorrhiza. So oh. when you actually click there, you can uh, browse this by different uh, species and okay. you can see what actually the mycorrhiza look like. Oh, so that has nice. been a great tool for us. Sometimes okay. when we see something under the microscope, because identifying mycorrhiza mm. visually, that's uh, <laughs> yeah, that's well, not yeah. so so easy. Mm -hmm. And then I think I wonder. Um, I will have to look up the link, but there's another mm -hmm. more like a popular science website about mycorrhiza with lots of tools and schemes okay. and you can see what an ectomycorrhiza looks like and also what an abuscular mycorrhiza looks okay. like if you want to know the differences between those so uh, there's lots of these like basic resources yeah yeah um, I like that, that uh, yeah you have to send me those then I usually share that with my with my students, but now I don't know the link. I don't know whether what it was in the end, whether it was .info or .org. <laughs> so <laughs> I will have I will have to look it up. Perfect. What it was. Awesome. Yeah. Then of course there's also books. So yeah. um, there's lots of mycorrhiza books. I think if you if you look at uh, Springer, is the usual academical book. Um, yeah. Mm, yep, like so uh, and they have books on really the basic principles, the, the function, the communication mm -hmm. in mycorrhiza, even biotechnology and use. A lot oh, of yeah. that, however, maybe is that people are aware is talking about endomycorrhiza or called abuscular mycorrhiza, which okay. are very common on uh, crop plants mm -hmm. and because crops are the biggest industry right. also the biggest interest and research is in that area mm -hmm. so if you want to know more about this interaction with the trees I would recommend that you always google ectomycorrhiza yep. and that you're aware that the ecto is written there because then you know yeah. then you know that you are <laughs> you in the right place <laughs> <laughs> definitely Oh, man. Yeah. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Did I miss anything? Did you want to say anything else or? I just want to say thank you. I really enjoyed talking to you. I thank think you. it was nice. We covered lots of different. Yeah, topics. we covered a lot of a lot of juicy topics today. So mm -hmm. thank you very much for getting into the nitty gritty on some things and talking about your research. If you need a, a research helper, I'm I'm here. I'm I'm willing to relocate. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> you need anyone. You know, we have funding. always things going on in the okay. lab. So there is, it's always depending on funding as mm -hmm. unfortunately, that's, I think the biggest bottleneck that's in research true. and yeah. a little bit unfortunate that mm -hmm. it can be such a bottleneck for getting things done as well. But uh, yeah, I will be definitely thinking of you. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Well, I, uh, I hope you have a nice night and I hope you have a good rest of your week. Thank you very much. It was you lovely too. talking to you. Thank you Lovely very much. talking to you. Yeah, thank you. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Well, see, I told you that'd be a good episode of Flora Funga Podcast. You can find me more on my website, www.florafungapodcast.com. F-L-O-R-A-F-U-N-G-A podcast.com. I also wanted to share with the audience that I have uh, created a buy me a coffee link, but instead of buying me coffee, I 
have obviously a book reading addiction and a tea making addiction. So if anybody would like to support the show, if you like the content that I make, I would love to see donations for that. And I would also like to turn that back to the community if I reach $100. I would love to do a special book giveaway. So maybe even comment somewhere uh, what kind of books you're interested in winning. Um, what other contests you would like me to do, any other giveaways. If anybody is interested on being on the show, I would love to hear from you. I love to uh, learn anything about my listeners, my plant and fungi listeners, my nature lovers. I'm going to do something special this week. I want to start reading reviews because it really helps the show to gain traction and let people actually hear about podcast. So if you want to leave a review, I will read them on the podcast and uh, shout you out. So this week's review I will be reading is from Dante Moroni. I enjoy the laid back and easygoing nature of this podcast. If you are interested in learning about mycology or plant biology with a down-to-earth host, I recommend giving a listen. Perfect for you if you need a refresher in an academic course or are just looking to nerd out. I'm excited to see what's in store for this podcast in the future. Ah, thanks, Dante. Thank you for the five stars. I love you. Love my listeners. Leave a review and I will probably read it out loud. So thank you again. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode and in a... Not this week, but the following week, I will have uh, another guest on, and I'm just going to leave it at that. All right. You can find all of my links below. I'm on all these social media things now. I got Twitter, which I don't really use, but let me know if people like me to use it more. I'm on Instagram way more often. I post these on YouTube. Um, You can also email me, which is below, and yeah. Let me know how I did. Have a great week, my scientists. Don't learn something new today. Peaches! Tired of feeling drained and lethargic? Wish you could boost your energy levels naturally and stay focused throughout the day with no crash? I've been struggling with this problem too. Thank you to Sovereignty's purpose for the ultimate energy of the day. Imagine a world where you wake up feeling refreshed, alert, and ready to conquer any challenge that comes your way. With Sovereignty, you live your life with purpose. Whether you're tackling a project, powering through a workout, or simply need a pick-me-up during the day, purpose is carefully crafted with a powerful combination of amazing ingredients like green coffee bean extract, cordyceps, ashwagandha, bacopa, beet juice, hemp blend, green tea extract, cherry, blueberry, broccoli, kale, and turmeric extract. All of this is only 25 calories and 115 milligrams of caffeine with no jitters and no crashes. Harness this aptogenic blend of benefits in your next smoothie, drink, cocktail, or dessert. Whether you're an entrepreneur, farmer, business professional, or student, Purpose has got your back. No more sluggish afternoons and hello productivity that lasts. Grab your blend with 10% off using the code KK10 on Sovereignty.co. 
That's S-O-V-E-R-E-I-G-N-T-Y dot C-O and use KK20 for 20% off at checkout.